There are millions of deals to be made, and we'll make them every day on Let's Make a Deal. Watch. We'll show you how it works. Live and direct, but often pre-recorded. This is a message that will never be distorted. Shout out to Franti. He's listener-supported. Whoop, whoop. This train is transportive. We're going to take it into summer. Chip stocks got a runner. It's NVIDIA. AI hype got it spinning up. NASDAQ keeps on winning up. Is this the beginning of another bubble that leads to trouble? Or the foundation of the rotation? Breakthroughs and innovations. Transforming generations. Giving birth to corporations. Spreading wealth across nations. Study it well. Time will tell if it's the start of something fresh. Let's take these tracks into the future on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. We're riding into this holiday shortened week with the summer wind at our back, coming off a sizzling rally on Friday led by chipmaker NVIDIA, the AI darling of the moment. Optimism about the lifting of the debt ceiling also contributed to the warm and fuzzies on Friday. That optimism was well-placed as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden agreed to agree in principle on raising the debt ceiling over the weekend. Nothing's final yet, and we'll get to what comes next in a minute. As for the markets, last week's scorecard looked a lot like the previous four weeks, with the Nasdaq clocking a 2.5% gain, the S&P 500 edging up just 0.3%, and the Dow sliding 1%. Treasury yields were all over the place, following the mixed signals coming out of Capitol Hill and the White House on the debt ceiling negotiations. Two-year Treasury yields rose for the 11th day in a row as the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, one of the Fed's preferred gauges of inflation, rose more than expected. Year-over-year, the PCE came in at 4.4%, still twice as high as the Fed would like it. Personal income rose 0.4%, while spending increased by 0.8%. We continue to spend more than we earn. Sound familiar? And that leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one. This rally for tech, internet, and communication stocks is no joke. NVIDIA alone rallied 30% last Wednesday after reporting better-than-expected earnings and a rosy forecast full of artificial intelligence plans, new ventures, and big profits. Anything with the words artificial intelligence in them right now is rallying, but especially chipmakers like NVIDIA, Broadcom, and AMD. Those stocks have led the gains with eye-popping numbers like this. NVIDIA is up 167% year-to-date, AMD is up 96%, and Broadcom up 45%, and it goes way beyond chips. Meta is up 118%, Tesla 57%, Amazon 43%, Alphabet 41%, Microsoft 39%, and Apple up 35%. These are the biggest stocks in the S&P 500, and they are in rally mode. Those stocks and sectors have helped push the S&P 500 to close to a 10% gain so far this year. And it's kind of made the overall index look a little bit expensive when we look at the PEG ratio, otherwise known as the PE ratio adjusted for growth. The S&P 500's PEG ratio is 1.92. That's pretty close to where it was in mid-2020 after the stock market's vicious bounce back from those COVID lows. Keep in mind, a so-called normal PEG ratio is around one times. This is nearly double that. And number two, While stocks, especially chip stocks, big tech, internet, and communication stocks may look expensive, rallies like the one we've been witnessing this year usually have legs when we look at history. Our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group points out that as of the 100th trading day of the year, which was last Thursday, the S&P 500 was up more than 7%. 
That would be the best start to a calendar year since 2021, which was a ripper of a year for stocks, and 2019, which is almost as good. When the S&P 500 reaches the 100th trading day of the year, up more than 7%, the rest of the year historically experiences another 9.4% rise for the index or more on average nearly 89% of the time. It may not happen this time around, but those are strong averages. And number three, what does come next in the debt ceiling tobacco now that there's a deal in principle in place? Well, lawmakers now need to vote on it, and that is not a slam dunk by any measure. On Sunday, the White House hosted a virtual briefing for Democrats to explain what's in the deal and to urge them to vote for it. Remember, the Democrats hold the Senate, but Republicans control Congress, and they've presumably been hosting similar meetings where House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has to convince his party to vote for the deal. Republicans demanded that the White House agree to a bill that contained, at a minimum, baseline government spending cuts, new work requirements for public assistance, energy permitting reform, and the rescinding of unspent COVID emergency funds. In the Republican-controlled House, there's a group of 35 ultra-conservative members who call themselves the Chaos Caucus, and they've been demanding that McCarthy demand more concessions from Democrats. They've already indicated they would not support a deal that they thought gave too much away. And remember, a vote to raise the debt limit does not authorize additional government spending. It merely permits the Treasury to meet obligations that were already approved by Congress in the past, some of them even decades ago. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said June 5th is now the deadline before the U.S. government runs out of money, so the clock is ticking. And one more thing. Even if Congress votes to raise the debt ceiling, there's no guarantee that the U.S. won't face a credit rating downgrade. Fitch Ratings put the U.S. on credit watch negative last week. That was before a deal was reached. But harken back to 2011. After a bitter battle, Congress did vote to lift the debt ceiling, and President Obama signed into law the Budget Control Act of 2011, raising the debt ceiling by $900 billion and extending the agreement for two years. Two months after signing that act, Standard & Poor's still downgraded the U.S. credit rating, and the stock market went on to plunge as much as 19% that year. This, my friends, is not over. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and the U.S. labor market will be in the spotlight. We'll get the job openings and labor turnover survey for April and the ADP National Employment Report for May, tracking private payrolls on Wednesday and Thursday. That's followed by the non-farm payrolls report for May on Friday. Job openings have been slowing, but as of March, there were still 1.6 jobs available for every available worker in the country. Openings for April are expected to have fallen to 9.2 million, the lowest level in two years. As for job gains, economists are expecting a modest gain of just 180,000 jobs last month, with the unemployment rate climbing to 3.5% from 3.4% in April. Remember, the Fed wants to keep cooling down the labor market, and this will be the last jobs report it will see before it meets again on interest rates in mid-June. We'll also get updates on the U.S. housing market with the release of the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index for March and the Home Price Index tracking prices of single-family homes for April. Prices are actually expected to rise slightly for the first time in seven months, but they're still down just under 1% for the year, the first year-over-year decline in housing prices since 2012. Those 6.5% 30-year mortgages have thrown the brakes on the housing market. As for earnings, reporting season is almost over, but we're still going to get results from Salesforce, HP, Broadcom, Dollar General, Lululemon, Athletica Macy's, and Dell Technologies, among others. 
We'll also get an update on inflation in the eurozone, which likely cooled to 6.3% in May from 7% in April. That would be the lowest annual rate since February of last year. While inflation in the eurozone has slowed from an all-time high of 10.6% in October, it remains well above the ECB's 2% target range. And as mentioned, Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. will be a busy place once lawmakers get back to work on Tuesday, as both sides will have to sell this latest debt ceiling agreement. Let the lobbying begin. I have to admit it. I couldn't stop thinking about that Gallup poll on Americans' perceptions of their best long-term investments. We talked about it last week, the one that indicated that more Americans think real estate and gold are better long-term investments than the stock market. It got me thinking more about wealth, retirement, the purpose of investing, and what it all means. You know, light thoughts. Last week, I spent a few days at Inside ETFs, a financial services conference for advisors, planners, wealth managers, and product developers about, you guessed it, exchange-traded funds, those baskets of securities that trade like stocks and are a cheaper alternative to index and mutual funds. Granted, the crowd there is pretty stock-centric, as you might imagine, but I got a chance to catch up with some of my favorite people in the industry, including Dr. Preston Cherry, who holds a PhD in financial planning, as well as Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson from Midholtz Wealth, the host of Animal Spirits, one of our favorite podcasts. I wanted to get their take on that question and go a little deeper into what wealth really means and how the concept of retirement has been morphing over the past few years. Here's my convo with Michael and Ben. As you guys probably read, Gallup's been conducting the survey of Americans' perceptions of the best long-term investments all the way back since 2011. Of the five choices, which are stocks and mutual funds, real estate, gold, savings accounts, and CDs, only 18% of respondents chose stocks as their best investment for the long term. The only time it was lower, guys, was back in 2011 when the country was crawling its way out of the great financial crisis. Real estate tops the list, right? 34% choosing home sweet home as their best investment, followed by gold at 26%, Michael, then stocks, then cash, then bonds. Does any of this, and I'll start with you, Ben, surprise you, given what we've grown up with in terms of stocks and mutual funds and ETFs sort of as the bedrock of investing? I think the early 2000s changed a lot of perceptions of the stock market as a whole. Two 50% crashes bookended in that decade, and the 2008 crash, and you had the, the movies about it, and the books about it, and all this stuff, and I think people heard so many stories about the stock market that I think, I think a lot of people would be surprised how well the stock market did in the 2010s. Even if they were invested in it, some people probably didn't know. Oh, we got double digit plus returns in the US stock market. So I think, I think that experience changed the way people view the stock market. I think the housing market being the, the top dog there, everyone has to live somewhere. So I think, and it even said in that, I read the same story you did, that even people who rent feel the same way, that housing is the best long-term investment. It's the American dream. So I think that it, there's a psychological component to it. And the housing thing is like, it's more tangible to people and it makes more sense if you're not in this world. Right. Well, home sweet home is where a lot of people, because you got to live somewhere, as you guys say, I've seen your charts that say, actually, real estate does not appreciate anywhere close to what the stock market does. Basically a third, 30%, given what we've seen in the stock market, which is nine, 10%, whatever, over the last few years. But is it surprising to you that this is the perception today, given what happened in the last year, Michael? or? Do you think it's fallen out of favor in general with people, given history, but also given maybe the lack of trust in financial institutions altogether? All right, two things. First, let's talk about real estate. Number one, it is people's longest long-term investment, right? We've all heard stories, oh, my parents paid $200,000 for this house and now it's worth six fifty. Well, what they don't take into account is just the that compound in over 30 years is very powerful, that 200 
just 650 could be, be 3% of a year over 30 years. They don't take into account real returns. They don't net out inflation. They don't take into account all the taxes that they never get back, all of the repairs that they never get back. You just see the headline, what I paid, what it's worth today. Okay, so I understand why people are so high on real estate. It also feels stable because you don't see the price of your house on CNBC. There's no ticker, right? So you, there's no perceived volatility because you don't see bids. Let's move on to the stocks. Why? So why is it that in 2023, with Ben and I were just talking about this, the, the Nasdaq's up close to 30% year to date. The S&P is up 10% or something like that. How is it that people are so down in the stock market when the stock market is actually doing fairly well? It's because they feel a gigantic disconnection between the economy, inflation, and the stock market. Now, we know empirically, no ifs, ands, or buts, that a basket of stocks will outperform a basket of real estate over the long term. That's There's no questions asked. Not over every three-year period, but certainly over a long term, however you define it, stocks are a better investment because people are motivated to increase their, their salary. How do you do that? You increase productivity. You increase your earnings per share, which is what ultimately drives the stock market. So we just know empirically that to be the case. But there is a disconnect. And I, w- I wasn't surprised by the study at all. I think that real estate being number one probably will always be number one. You know, I'm sure it hovers. I'm sure there are t- bubble times where stocks go ahead. And gold being a little bit ahead of the stock market surprised me a little bit. But I wasn't shocked. I wasn't shocked. Things have changed, obviously. A lot of people that started investing 10, 15 years ago only knew low inflation, pretty much low interest rates, and a stock market that kind of went up. Every risk asset kind of went up over time. Ben, you've studied this, and I know you talk about it a lot. Things have changed, and we're going to be in this, whatever this new-ish normal is, for a while now. How do you counsel people on the advisory side who are like, is this the way to build wealth? By investing in stocks, by buying into mutual funds, by that process? What's changed in terms of your conversations, if any? Well, it's interesting because inflation is always there, right? Like, it's not like prices went down before. It's just they're they're much higher now than they've been. And people don't think about, like, we never talk about real returns until inflation becomes high. But, like, that's always one of the things we lead with when doing financial plans for people is your standard of living, your cost of living, that's the whole thing. When, like, planning out, you know, decades into the future, right? That's the That's the biggest piece of the puzzle for most people, right? And obviously... Part of it is thinking through your own personal finances and spending, and part of it is how does that impact the markets. I mean, there's been bouts of inflation in the past, or will be some in the future. I think the whole point is, I think a lot of people got left flat-footed, they didn't, they didn't plan for it at all, is you just have to have a portfolio that's durable enough to handle inflation and deflation and high growth and low growth and all these things. And you might not, it might not always be perfect, but that's, that should be the idea going in, and that's the whole point of diversification in the first place is understanding that if you concentrate in one specific part of the market or one strategy that only does well in certain environments, when that environment changes, you might be out of luck. Right. So best advice for young people, younger than me, younger than you guys, even though you're young, for building wealth now, is it that diversification model that we kind of all grew up with? Bitcoin. But but (laughs) hey, wouldn't have been a bad call. It's one of the best performing assets in air quotes. I'm only teasing, but I, I I think you're right. Diversification now. It's not fun building wealth over the long term, right? You want to people don't want to get rich today, so I, there's no way to, there's no way around that. There's no way to solve that. You could scream from the top of your lungs. Every generation has to learn their own lessons, like we did, and make their own mistakes, and come to the hopeful conclusion that diversification really is the best form of risk management, well, even though it's just not perfect. The there's other part of it perfect. is just having a long time horizon. That the thing, housing might not be as good of a return over the long term as stocks on a percentage return net of whatever basis. 
But the fact that people are forced to hold their house over the long term and it is illiquid, I think is actually a positive for people because they have to get the long run return. If you had a stock market fund that you didn't see the prices every single day and traded on a you know a tick to tick basis and you held it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years automatically, people would, maybe people would be happier with the stock market because they couldn't trade in and out of it. Right. And you can't make an emotional decision with your yeah. house and just trade out of it tomorrow. That's a big time decision. Yeah, so. real estate is most people's longest long-term investment. Yeah. The biggest one they make and their longest yeah. long-term investment. Yeah. And something, something you can also pass on to future generations, your kids, your grandkids, et cetera. Okay, your best advice for building wealth long-term, Ben. I think less is more in keeping things simple. I think part of it is just understanding yourself and what strategy is going to work for you. I think there's a lot of different strategies that can work depending on your personality and your emotional makeup. So I think it's really about just finding something that works for you and sticking with it come hell or high water. I am such a big fan of those two. And if you haven't discovered Animal Spirits, The Compound, and all the other great work coming out of the Ritholtz Wealth Management Team, you are in for a treat. Go check it out. But back to that question of what wealth means and why it makes us feel a certain way. I know there's a lot packed into that. The way we were raised around money, our earliest experiences with money, how we learn or don't learn about money. It's heavy stuff, and I wanted to really examine it. I needed a doctor. Dr. Preston Cherry, co-founder of Concurrent Financial Planning and Practice Intelligence. When you think about building wealth long-term and think about how you started and how you taught people to do that mm -hmm. and how you taught people to think about that, what would be your best advice for building wealth long-term if you were starting now, say you're in your 20s or your 30s? Oh, particularly in your 20s, you have time. Oh my goodness, um, you know, my, my niece, she's 15, and I'm trying to pass on to her that you have time to be in the market, not necessarily timing the market, so, so to speak. I mean, listen, the, the best of gurus, if we could time the market, I mean, everybody would be rich. So the longer that you can spend in the market, and you can start early, particularly in your 20s, then you can weather the storms that we have every now and again, because just like life, the market is ebbs and flows. But if you live long enough, my grandfather said all the time, he said, listen, son, just live long enough. And over time, if you live long enough, life is pretty good. So is the market. If you stay in long enough and you start early, life is pretty good and so is the market. You can build wealth like that if you stay in long enough and start in early enough. We're chatting at Inside ETFs, this is a big financial services industry conference, yeah. obviously around ETFs. Yeah. Um, but you see a lot of companies that really that you and I know well, the Fidelities of the world, the asset managers of the world, they're all here and talking to advisors who ultimately sell mutual funds, index funds and ETFs to clients like me. But things have changed, not only just because of high inflation and high interest rates, but there's a perception change that seems to be going on right now. Do you feel that? not only in your practice, but in talking to the people in your world, that the idea of investing the way that you and I grew up investing is the ticket to long-term wealth creation still? Still is, uh, although it's a little different because of the immediate gratification. I, I, we're social media fans, but that said, I think that is also influencing the immediate gratification of stock picking. And again, if everybody could pick the perfect stock, everybody would be rich. Now, there is a place for value investing and picking a good stock every now and again based on fundamentals and waiting for a discount with free cash. But there's an opportunity for that if you're taking care of your everyday automatic dollar cost of averaging investing, that long-term automated and you're 
say your employer-based plans or all of those long-term patient investing that will build over time. Let's take care of that first. Then you can have your cash on the side to where you can pick those one or two stocks that you can focus on and say, okay, those are that's opportunistic investing, but that's not your main investing. Because if you do that and that's your focus and you don't have the skill, then you know, you're running the risk of not coming out uh, on the positive side uh, you know, over time. What about the people that say, well, I'd love to invest, I'd love to save, but I got some debt. So what do you counsel people, especially younger people, or even where you teach, when you're talking about people in their 20s or 30s, and you're, what's the trade-off there? Pay down the debt, or save and invest, or try to do a little bit of both? Where do you fall on that line? Yes, I think you can do both at the same time. That said, you know, historically, as far as investing in the market over time, you can, it's a range of, you know, eight to 12% in that range, right? So if you have debt that has high interest rates, then you're paying yourself a high rate of interest, a high rate of return. So if your interest rates are 14, 15, 20%, then you're paying yourself back that rate of return. So you might want to start retiring that back and then taking care of that first. Then you can reinvest that back into the market and get a rate of return long term back into the market. And when you pay down debt, then you have it's kind of like a snowball effect. If you retired some debt, then you can use that monies that you were paying down debt and invest larger chunks of money into the market. And that's called a savings rate. I've been spending a lot of time lately talking to high school students about money. At Investopedia, we've been developing free financial literacy lessons and curriculum for students all year long, and I've been visiting schools, talking to educators, and learning as much as I can about how money is being taught and talked about from kindergarten through senior year. It's fascinating. I was never taught any of that back in the 1980s, and it's a wonder that I actually have this job. I also live with a couple of teenagers, my daughters, one's turning 19 and the other turning 17. Granted, they've grown up with a father who's a financial journalist, so they are money aware, and money has never really been a source of stress for them. They have it pretty good. But since I'm around them and their friends a lot, I get to ask them questions about their perceptions about money, saving, investing, and retirement. Here's a recent conversation I had with my youngest daughter, Zoe, and her pal, Ella, both about to turn 17 years old. What I say the word wealthy to you. What does that mean? What does that conjure up? To me, it means being financially prosperous and like almost financially stable in a way that you're, you can't really be in a state of like financial doubt or trouble or like insecurity to the point where, you know, it's like an accumulation of money, right? So being wealthy means that you can fall back on your wealth, but also wealth is kind of hereditary. You can pass it down. Yeah. Yeah. When I think of wealthy, I think of like old wealth coming from, you know, Mm. families or generations before, but then also people who didn't grow up wealthy and who just accumulated money over time in their life because of their job, because of, you know, luck. I don't, Mm -hmm. I think wealthy is a very interesting way to define your life, but also money is kind of the center of everything. So a lot of people define themselves as wealthy, but I think if you're wealthy, you don't necessarily define yourself as wealthy. Do you, Mm. do you agree with that? Yeah, I would think so. I think, um, wealthy, when I think of the word wealthy, it makes me think of the word rich. And yeah. I, cause I feel like yeah. they mean the same thing, but yeah. one is like a little bit more fancy. So I feel like. I feel like one is more socially acceptable to yeah. say. And also one is like totally a, like almost like a class. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? And also rich. I feel like when I think wealthy, 
I'm thinking specifically money, but you know, you can be like rich in like love and stuff. Yeah. I feel like it's yeah. just a little bit more money specific, but it also kind of really amps up that upper class. Yeah. Do you think you're going to have the opportunity to do better than your parents financially? Do you think you have a chance to do that? And do you feel like you have hope to be able to be wealthier than your parents or accumulate more wealth than your parents? That's interesting. I don't think so. I think, um, I don't think that will happen for me just simply because um, <clears throat> I know the field my parents work in and I know um, the different salaries and those types of things. And I also know that, you know, especially with the stuff I'm interested in, I think just earning money will be different for me. And I also mm. think a lot of their money will probably end up, you know, trickling into my money. I don't know about that. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, you know, I just, you know, because I've been raised more upper class i don't really think i'll lose that class but i don't think i'll necessarily top it mm. right yeah i mean i think my parents don't necessarily talk about like mm -hmm. specific money with me like obviously i know what my parents do and i know that we you know live a, a very you know stable life but i think that my parents don't really talk about salary with me so i don't have a sense of like how much they're earning yearly how much is going into spending on your house and mm. other stuff so i think that obviously it's the not the goal for me to be wealthy, but I want to be in a place where I'm financially stable and able to care for my parents when they get older too. But I think that I don't really have a sense of exactly how much I'll be earning in relation to them. Yeah. What do you think are the ways to accumulate a wealth? What do you think would be like the best long-term investment mm -hmm. at this age in your life? What do you think that is? I think starting now, like being mm -hmm. able to I talk to my parents about, you know, investing in stocks and how do I do that and getting a financial advisor when I'm 18 and just really like beginning now and putting my money away. Like my parents, when I get money for my birthday, it immediately goes away into the bank. It immediately goes away for college, for other things that we can deal with later on. So I think that, I mean, for me, I'm like, you know, investing in stocks is like great, but mm -hmm. it's also, it takes a lot of understanding how things work and understanding how investment works. And I think starting at this age and just knowing how to do that and beginning is good. Yeah, definitely that. I think um, also working on your financial intelligence, right? Like mm -hmm. as the economy keeps changing and as, you know, what investing means keeps changing. I, you know, I save money and I have money invested and I'm still, you know, a little bit in the dark about what that means, how we can use that money, how that will grow, how it won't grow. So I think, you know, if you're going to keep um, letting your wealth increase or your money increase, then, you know, make sure it's matching your financial mindset i like that let me give you some choices and you tell me what you think is the best prospect for earning money over the long term the best long-term investment mm -hmm. all right real estate stocks and mutual funds gold bonds or cash mm. or bitcoin mm. wow <laughs> bitcoin <laughs> the highest hat what is that literally oh, i'm going with um i'm Wait, what's a bond again? A bond is debt. <laughs> no, same. It's the debt of a company. It's an obligation mm -hmm. to pay you back. Oh, a stock okay. is okay. like a slice of the company, right, a right, fraction. Right. A bond is is a guarantee they'll pay you back and them giving you money to loan them money. I think stocks can be very on and off. Like you invest your money and then it can the stock market can go up one day and then it can crash the other day. Like I that's how I my parents have described it to me. I'm almost like dumbing it down for me. Mm -hmm. Not dumbing it down, just like beginning to teach me about it. But I think that Honestly, real estate is a great way, I think. Yeah. That's like what I've heard. I feel like I don't know enough about it to say, yeah, this is a way to do it. But I think education on real estate and how to invest your money in that would probably be beneficial. If someone said to you, 
I'm going to put a million dollars worth of stocks away for you for the next 10 years. I wouldn't know. Or I'm going to buy you a house that's going to be waiting for you in 10 years. Which one would you choose? Oh. I think I would choose the house. Really? Because it's more stable. I mean, mm. but with that, it's also when you put, I don't, I don't know how much a million, you know, in stocks is. So I think that like, that is, it, it's it's really up and down and on and off with the, mm-hmm. the way things go for stocks. But I think that, you know, putting money away into a house, I can later rent that house. I can sell that house. I can do things with that stable thing rather than just putting it into the stock market and seeing, you know, if it crashes, I lose all my money. I also th- I think, yes. And I think having a house waiting for you is good because it'll save you a lot of money in the future. And, you know, that money kind of keeps its value. Mm. Its value stays still because it's, you know, in the house. But I also think that value almost changes in the house. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just because like if you want to resell the house when you're older or when you finally get it, um, I don't know if the value is going to change. But that's why I'm almost inclined to say stocks, because I think if I put a million in the stock market in how many years was it? 10. 10 years, it'll be, what, 10 million? Not 10 million, but okay. the stock market goes up an average of about 10% a year every year. I didn't know yeah. that. An average. Yeah. So I Some years, like last stocks, year, it yeah. goes down. It's guaranteed to grow. When Not guar- put- nothing's guaranteed. Final question. Make, let's make it quick. Don't want you to be late for school. It's okay. When I say it. the word retirement, what does that mean to you? And is that something you think you should be <laughs> aspiring to? I mean, you're only 17, but... I can start with that one. I mean, I think when I hear the word retirement, I think of my grandparents because they're the only people I know in my life that are retired. Um, I think that I don't even know how to even plan for retirement. I think I, it's something that we should learn about now because it comes pretty fast and it comes, you know, with earning money and accumulating money over time. But I think that retirement is a really scary thing because mm-hmm. how are you going to have enough money to last you the rest of your life if you're not working? So I think I should definitely learn more about that. I think from what I know about retirement, I know the 401k, um, <laughs> and I know that it goes into investing, right? So even right now, or probably when you turn 18, yeah. if you talk to a financial advisor, my guess is that they will help you set up a retirement fund, or maybe when you start your first job, you're looking at me, I don't know what that means, but um, <laughs> I think retirement is something that you like have to desperately plan for, yeah. and when did like the first 401k become... In the 50s, it was the first time employers started contributing or or incentivizing employees, their employees to invest and save for the future. But it wasn't mandatory. So does that mean part of your salary? That's right. Is that required? Not required. Some companies offer it and some companies will match whatever you contribute up to a certain percentage. I I had no idea. That's so cool. Trying to incentivize (laughs) you to save for the future and and invest for the future. Not all companies offer it, though. So I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like retirement... Almost like in contrast to you, none yeah. of my grandparents are retired and they're both still earning money, but I know that it's a prospect now as they're turning like 80 and yeah. 75 and stuff. So I think just because of the family that I'm in, I, it makes me think that retirement is almost like for those last like 20 years. How, yeah. old, how old do you think you're going to be when and if you retire? I think it depends on my status and my financial security at the There's time. There's no date in mind where you're like, I'm going to make it to that. Well, I'm isn't it 65? That's when you can retire from some jobs. 67. Oh I would have to be so rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my grandparents, my grandpa is still working mm. um, just because my mm. family's mm. up. My grandma passed away. And so he's still working to accumulate money. But I think that for me, I was like 80. Like that's mm. the yeah. idea that I have in mind. But it's also 
will I be healthy at 80? Mm. What will my physical being look yeah. like? Can I be, still be working at that? Like, What is my job going to be? Yeah. What am I going to be doing? Am I going to? Yeah. If I'm like a physical trainer, personal physical yeah. trainer. Like, at what 80. <laughs> yeah, guys. <laughs> I love that. I'm lifting weights. Thank you, guys. Go to school. Don't be late. And learn about financial literacy. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week, we've got a daily double. That's right. We've got Michael Badnick and Ben Carlson from Animal Spirits sharing their favorite terms live and direct from inside ETFs. My favorite, my goodness. We have more least favorites than favorites, don't we? Right? Uh, Give me your least favorite, then we'll work on your favorite. Community adjusted EBITDA. Oh, that was the WeWork metric. <laughs> that was a good one. Wait, no, this is a really good question. Ben, I want to punt to you. And I, I, I mean, I'm not second. a fan of robust or granular, typically. But, granular is uh, not, a, not a financial term. Come on. I don't, I, I don't have a good answer for this question. That is it. You kind of stumped us. I know. Well, you said to leave it in the locker room, so yeah. I left it in the yeah, locker room. No, now, no, you've no, I I right. now you've had a chance Favorite to think about Favorite financial term, freedom. I love that. I love that. And you don't mean that in the... Now, I'm sort of joking with the fire sense but, of the word. No, but I think I think that money is a tool to provide you with peace of mind. So if you can get to a point where you're financially free, not from work, not free to do nothing all day, but financially free to steal something from Ramit, free, uh, free to order appetizers and not have to worry about it. Like that's that's freedom. That's great. And I've read your book speaks a lot to that, right? But I'd love to know your favorite financial term, Ben Carlson. Like whether it's wealth or rich, and I think the idea behind it is like those are those are loaded terms that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And what what a rich life means to you might mean something completely different to someone else. And I think there's just different ways of thinking through that. And it's not just a, a number or something in a spreadsheet. It's it's a lot of different things. It can be time or how you who you work with or where you live. All these kinds of things. I think there's a different definition of rich for for a lot of different people. We're going to let the late, great Tina Turner take us out this week. Turner passed away last week at the age of 83, but not before leaving us with countless gifts of her incredible music and performances. What's love got to do with it? Private dancer, we don't need another hero, better be good to me, and on and on and on. Turner lived a difficult life, to say the least, and was very public about it in her later years. But her success as one of the all-time greatest rock and roll entertainers was rooted in her resilience, her passion, and her ability to push herself to the next level, despite the odds. Here's Tina Turner in a 1984 interview with CBS News, just having released another best-selling record, What's Love Got to Do With It? Each time I keep topping myself, and I don't know why I don't know yet that I can, but I think that if I knew I could, I'd mess up. You know, I think somehow that if I really knew that I was going to be successful at it, I, it wouldn't be as successful. But it's working. And each time it is a surprise, not a surprise, surprise. The surprise is I did it. Tina Turner, simply the best. Thanks for joining us this week. And special thanks to Michael Batnick, Ben Carlson, Preston Cherry, and Ella and Zoe, of course, for sharing their thoughts on wealth, retirement, and the purpose of it all. I needed those conversations for my own soul. By the way, Investopedia has a new magazine out on newsstands near you. That's right, an actual magazine, our second, by the way. It's called What to Do with $10,000, which is one of the most popular questions we get every month here at Investopedia. There are lots of answers to that question since it's a very personal question, of course. That's why we call it personal finance. The team at Investopedia has tried to answer that question as personally and thoroughly as we can for most types of scenarios, whether you have debt, 
want to save for something special, want to invest for the long term, start a business, invest in somebody else's business, or just give it away, we have advice for anyone asking what to do with $10,000 or even $1,000. It's a good question, and we did our best to answer it, so look for that issue on the racks and in Apple News. We'll link to it and all the reports and people we cited on today's show, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.